Hey, podcast listeners, this is Greg Dalton. You're listening to our new C1 Review, a podcast connecting highlights from three shows. Thanks for joining our conversation. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. I'm Greg Dalton. Thoughts lead to action, so our actions and inactions regarding the climate challenge are affected by how we think about the issue. The brain was designed in evolution as a tool for survival. You know, over you know, hundreds of thousands or maybe million years. And global changes, it doesn't really register in the same way as, you know, there's a tiger around the block. Can people rise above the limits of our brains? And what signals in society can move us forward? I want to be worthy of my children's positive regard. They're passionate about the environment. And so I'm saying, all right, I have to do better. And I think it's that sense of connection that has to feel right to do what's right. Thinking about the climate with Deepak Chopra, Daniel Goldman, and others. Up next on Climate One. Climate One is changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. I'm Greg Dalton. Talks about protecting the climate are peppered with megawatts and BTUs, parts per million and fugitive methane, wind velocity, and crop yields. All these terms can make your head spin, even if you understand and accept that humans are frying the earth. But behind the numbers are hearts and minds, and that's what we're talking about today. How do people think about climate change? Why aren't more Americans engaged in actively addressing the most pressing issue of our times? And how do social groups shape individual attitudes toward climate disruption? With me are three authors who are making connections between climate facts and how we think about them. Daniel Goleman popularized the term emotional intelligence, which is also known as EQ. He's also author of Ecological Intelligence, How Knowing the Hidden Impacts of What We Buy Can Change Everything. Joshua Friedman is CEO of a consulting firm, Six Seconds, and author of Inside Change, Transforming Your Organization with Emotional Intelligence. And George Lakoff is a professor of linguistics at the University of California, Berkeley, and the author of many books, including The Political Mind, a Cognitive Scientist's Guide to Your Brain and Its Politics. Here's our conversation about ecological intelligence. Dan Goldman, let's begin with you. There's lots of facts and information out there about our climate is changing, and yet people aren't acting as though the house is on fire. Why? I think it comes down to a design flaw in the human brain. The brain was designed in evolution as a tool for survival, you know, over you know, hundreds of thousands mm-hmm. or maybe million years. And we're now attuned to recognize, you know, the rustle in the bushes as the danger. But actually, the global changes, we don't perceive nor are we alarmed by these changes. We don't perceive them because they're too macro and too micro. And it doesn't really register in the same way as, you know, there's a tiger around the block. Josh Friedman, you've done a lot of work with organizations. Are organizations responding to this in a way that maybe the individual level is not? When we come down to really day-to-day operations in organizations... Our focus is on a lot of short-term urgent stuff and not on the long-term really important stuff. And whether that's quarterly profits or whether it's my kid came home from school and is unhappy or whatever, those things feel very urgent to us organizationally and personally. And I think it's very difficult for individuals and probably even more difficult for organizations to pay attention. George Lakoff, why aren't we responding to all the information around us? Extreme weather droughts, floods, that scientists are connecting increasingly to climate change. Why aren't we responding? There's the distinction between direct and systemic causation. Direct causation is I pick up a glass of water, I take a drink, it's direct. But the environment is a matter of systemic causation. It's a system. And let me give you an example. You have freezing in Georgia or Oklahoma. What do you mean global warming? But you get... Uh, evaporation over the Pacific Ocean with global warming because the molecules are going faster. You have over the poles uh, more energy that's pushing the winds from the west down into Georgia, Oklahoma, whatever, making them cold. That is a kind of systemic causation which can be probabilistic and can have feedback loops. People don't know that. Dan Goldman, 
What I'd like to point to, though, is systems blindness. The making of this chair, of this jacket, of that light, and the taxi that drove me over here created a, a huge array of ecological consequences for the environment that feed into the slow death of uh, you know, the global system supporting life. You have to learn systemic causation, and it doesn't come That's automatically. Right. It's education. I am a big advocate of bringing this into schools, teaching systems thinking, teaching life cycle assessment thinking. So, you know, there could be a math problem. Uh, the smog level today was X. Please compute how many people would use a fraction of a year of life to say a respiratory problem because of today's smog. Well, in order to solve that, you have to understand systemically the particulates that are going into lungs, the the chemistry of it, the biology of it, the epidemiology of it. And I think if kids had these mental models growing up, Mm -hmm. they would make very different decisions than we who are system blind today. Christine Todd Whitman, former governor of New Jersey, was here at Climate One a few weeks ago, and she said, don't make climate a moral issue because you don't compromise on morality and that it makes it very difficult for people to compromise and people harden their standpoints, and that is a bad way to go. George Lakoff? This is a moral issue, period, and moral issues are where people live. Morality is what defines who you are as a human being. And it's who you are emotionally and morally as a human being that matters in your life to what you do every day. It must be a moral issue. This isn't a matter of compromise because we've been compromising too long. We have like 35 years to turn this around, period. That's not long. Josh Friedman? When we move into this kind of oppositional way of talking about anything, what happens is we're actually fueling this threat system that I proposes what's in the way of us actually solving these problems. The more we move into this is dangerous, this is destructive, we have 35 years and if you're not with it, you're a bad person. We're pushing away from dialogue and into strife. That's why you'd make it positive morally. You make it morally positive and what's interesting but about But then there's this, a bad. Like if we, if we say there's, there's good, then automatically if you don't agree with me, then you're bad. Let other people decide that. But the question is, how do we get out of it? Dan Goldman? We need to shift, as Josh said, from the negative, from scaring people about this to encouraging them to do something. The footprint and the handprint. Your carbon footprint or ecological footprint is the number of all the ways in which you and I and the rest of us are damaging the planet by everything we buy and do. And it's a negative thing and it arouses negative emotional systems when you think about it. Your handprint is all the things you do to lower your footprint. And the goal is to make your handprint bigger than your footprint. Then you're a net positive in the world. And that activates positive neural systems Mm -hmm. and keeps people motivated, keeps them moving. I think we have to think along those lines. We're talking about climate change and the human brain and the human heart at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and our guests are Josh Friedman, author of Inside Change, Dan Goleman, author of Ecological Intelligence, and George Lakoff, professor of linguistics at UC Berkeley. George Lakoff, tell us a little bit about the positive-negative circuits in the brain, how this is really embedded in our brain, the dopamine circuit and the norepinephrine circuits. In our brains, we have what is called a reward system, and that's where morality comes from. You eat pure food, you feel good. You eat rotten food, you feel bad. That's why morality is purity and immorality is rottenness. There are dozens of these basic metaphors that structure our brains and give us moral systems, and they are crucial because it's not merely the emotional part of the brain that's there. It's the metaphorical part that frames issues in your brain deeply and unconsciously every minute of every day. Josh Friedman? So I think we're all in agreement here that we need to somehow bring emotion and cognition together. And there's a lot of great neuroscientists looking at how we actually make decisions, great studies in brain imaging helping us understand that. If we take that to this topic of climate change, what is the emotional condition that has to occur? You know, not waiting for somebody to change the media or not waiting for somebody to change this company or this government, but what does it take for us to change? I know there are things I could be doing better in terms of my relationship with the environment. I would guess that everybody in this room can think of ways that they could make those changes. So I'd like to take this to a more personal level as we think about the role of emotion in our decision-making. How do we get better 
Oftentimes, individuals think that their actions don't matter. The carbon I save is meaningless when China's pumping out coal and there's hundreds of millions of people moving up into the middle class. How does my carbon matter? You have to do it both at the educational level, at the emotional level, at the unconscious automatic level, but you have to do it at a political level as well. Let's have our first audience question. Welcome. I was glad that the, um, the moral issue thing was raised and held up very strongly. And the thing is, to me, it's a moral issue of an unprecedented kind because it's all about consequences at scale. And so there's no feedback that tells you it's an evil thing to burn fossil carbon. And yet the effect of all of us doing it is disaster. So people can say and say rightly, well, I'm responsible for about you know, a hundred millionth of the problem, say, if I'm in the rich part of the world, and I can reduce that, but so what? It's not going to change the outcome. This is need... called the uh, bystander phenomenon, psychology. Hank Dan Golan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If someone's in need and you're there immediately confronting them and you empathize, you help. But if a hundred people are there, you walk by. And, and this is the dilemma of posing it as a moral question because who's responsible? A sense of diminished responsibility may work against actually coming to a solution. I think Gandhi uh, said, nothing you do makes very much difference, but it's really important that you do it anyway. Let's have our next audience question. Hi, Gary, Malaysian. People are into sex, people are into fun, and people are into food. You just keep arguing and banging your head against the wall, and people are not hearing you. Make it sexy, make it oriented to food, and make it fun, man, and you got America. We use, uh, we use different language. Um, that's actually what the reward system is all about. That's, that's about exactly it. right. That is what the reward system is all about. Yeah. And that's why food is such a major issue in all of this. You're absolutely right. It's all about empathy and caring and connection to the physical world, connection to what you eat, connection to your own body. So we're going to redo the Climate One website later this year, and so I'm just thinking what that means in terms of what's going to be on the home page. Okay, all right. I want to agree with George for a second on this about connection. And case study of of one, I am passionate about the environment because I want to be worthy of my children's positive regard. They're passionate about the environment, And so I'm saying, all right, I have to do better. And I think it's that sense of connection that has to feel right to do what's right. Are you worried about feeling guilty? I grew up with a Jewish grandmother. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm worried about looking at myself in the mirror at the end of the day and saying I wasn't the best person I could be today. Back to identity. Very strong. Let's have our next audience question. I am a, a high school student from Oakland Tech, and we talk about educating the youth but I never really hear how exactly we can take this home to our parents. Because a lot of people are raised in uh, spoke-when-you-are-spoken-to households. How is a teenager supposed to go home and explain, Mom, everything you believe about how your car is healthy is wrong. Listen to me, I'm younger than you. Let's <laughs> just... <laughs> So I, Dan Goldman, I, I totally agree. You know, I think education is the key because my generation, in a sense, is a lost generation. Our mental models are well-formed. Our moral systems are well-formed. It's not too late, Dan. We, we can change so much. But I think that kids are just forming their understanding of how the world works. And if we can help them see these things clearly and use this as a rudder, an, an ethical, moral rudder, and a practical rudder through life... It's going to have a very long-term future over the course of each child's life. And George Lakoff, does that mean giving youth power sooner, transferring power earlier than we might have before? I teach freshmen, you know, a course in applying cognitive science to politics. The first question I asked last year was, what's fracking? One Berkeley freshman out of 50 knew what fracking was and what the problems were. People have to be taught. It's not just their, you know... They're not getting it from TV. If you go and watch MSNBC, the ads for all of the oil companies will overwhelm every message that's coming off of the commentators. Josh Friedman, last word, the youth. Change starts on the inside. And if we can support children and adults to connect with that capability and to develop what's already there, then things are going to get a lot better. We've been talking about language and climate change with Joshua Friedman, a business consultant, and author Daniel Goleman, who popularized the term emotional intelligence. 
Also with us was George Lakoff, a professor of linguistics at the University of California, Berkeley. This is Climate One. evidence in support of human-caused climate change is mighty, yet a significant portion of the American public still denies that it's happening. Climate activists often say, if only they could hear the facts, but perhaps more facts are not the answer. What is at the root of our thinking about climate change? In addition to our brains, language and social groups influence how we feel about this divisive issue. New research suggests some groups implicitly agree not to talk about climate change in polite company. Here now to discuss why we think and act the way we do are a scholar and a journalist. Dacher Keltner is a professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, where he studies the social function of emotion, power and social behavior, and negotiating morality. And George Marshall, author of Don't Even Think About It, Why Our Brains Are Wired to Ignore Climate Change. He's a former campaigner for Greenpeace and now a communications consultant based in Britain. Here's our conversation about climate and our brains. George Marshall, do you recall when you first realized that climate disruption was a serious issue, and did you see it as a threat or an opportunity? In 1988, I went to a small public meeting um, just in the small town where I lived in Britain. There was a public meeting, and I left absolutely shocked and devastated. The other thing, which was remarkable about it, is how quickly that feeling passed. But I'd look around and go, this is really serious. I'd talk to people and no one seemed to know anything about it. There was no interest. Everything was going on as usual. You just go, well, this is not happening out in the wider social realm, therefore it doesn't exist. And then it was another 12 years before I started seriously working on it. The thing that I take from the lesson is that climate change is how we see it is very much in terms of what we're picking up from the people around us. We can feel whatever we like about it. But if you're not getting that support from the wider society outside, it's very hard to hold that conviction. Decker Keltner, did you come to it intellectually or emotionally? This issue really came to me emotionally. And as somebody who studies different species to make sense of where we came from evolutionarily, what really hit me early was the loss of species. And in particular, you know, the reducing populations of great primates in Africa. And that spoke to me really personally. And then I think the information and the facts became ways of making sense of, of that initial emotional reaction. So it's emotions supported by facts. George Marshall, let's talk about the structure of narratives, the perpetrators, the effects, and the motives. One of the things which is a real challenge of climate change is that, as a narrative, it does not have an enemy with the intention to cause harm. None of us seek to cause harm through the things which cause climate change. We're just driving the kids to school, or we're having a holiday. There's no intention. In fact, there's often an intention to do good. But people slot an enemy into that narrative. On the environmental side, I think we've been quite fast to demonize all companies which are doing some seriously negligent things. And, of course, people on the right respond to all of that by slotting people like me into the narrative, making us into the enemy. And climate change has become so identified with your political identity that when we play these enemy games, we are just reinforcing the divide, which really shouldn't be there. Dr. Keltner, you want to comment on that? A lot of the classic narratives about climate change have to do with harm and care, right? We want to take care of vulnerable species or take care of the environment or the loss of parts of our ecosystems. And that narrative is probably appealing to one side of the partisan divide, liberals. And there's recent work in moral psychology that climate deniers will actually be more moved by arguments and advocate for policies if the issue's framed in terms of purity, which is a very compelling moral frame for people of a more conservative political persuasion. So if you talk about climate change in terms of the degradation to water, the pollution, if you will, and couch it in those terms, you see a closing of that partisan divide. But a lot of companies, a lot of powerful interests make their money from extracting and burning fossil fuels. So aren't they inherently institutionally, perhaps individually, threatened by saying that that has to change? George Marshall? I think climate change is deeply threatening. I think that that is, of course, a reason why some very powerful economic interests are deeply challenged by it. That does not mean, however, that we cannot find ways of talking about it which speak to common purpose rather than some kind of uh, head-to-head battle. 
So are we the enemy? Are we demonizing oil companies? But it's really some shadow of ourselves, George Marshall? We are all in various ways challenged by this and, and we're all in various ways involved with it. Of course, we're all in various ways finding collective alibis for it. If people feel guilty, like I'm yeah. part of the problem, it's easier to just ignore the problem than to look at that. Dr. Keller? I, I think we are hesitant to approach the problem because it taps into so many of our basic habits and tendencies, right? To get into a car, to search for consumer products that'll make us happy and the like. But I also feel that there's a positive spin here, which is that a lot of new science suggests an amazing capacity to sacrifice. And we know shifts in social behaviors that benefit others are actually good for your health. They activate reward circuits in the brain. So I don't think it's inevitable at all. So that sounds like living like a European, smaller house, smaller car, lower income, but they're happier people. Is that true, George Marshall? I live in a small community in a, in a rural part of Wales in Britain. By all of the social indices, one of the happiest places in Britain. It is not one of the richest. The most important thing there is a sense of social identification that people have. And I do think that's what people are yearning for and that people most desperately need. So America has a much higher level of energy use and resource use, but it isn't measurably happier than Europe. Let's talk about risk. People interact with risk in all sorts of ways in their daily lives, from getting in a car, smoking, etc. So talk about how we process the risk of something yeah. as big as climate. Yeah. Dr. Keller? What we have in our brains is a part of our nervous system called the amygdala, which triggers stress and cortisol and, and fight-or-flight behavior. And that's been crafted by tens, hundreds of millions of years to respond to immediate threats, dangerous objects, predators out in the environment, and not these abstract, long-lasting events that involve complex systems like climate change. The things which alert us to risk is one aspect, but the only way we can survive in an information-saturated world that we live in, sitting here facing a room that may, under historic conditions, contain as many people as I might have met in my entire life in a hunter-gatherer group, and then going out into the street and dealing with San Francisco and dealing with the whole world and heaven knows watching American television. Um, so we have an inbuilt bias to disregard things just to keep ourselves sane. So it's partly that climate change doesn't carry the things that trigger that sense of attention, but it's also partly that it has a number of things which trigger our disattention. But what I would argue is that there are other parts of the brain that are capable of being activated. We have this love of nature and other species that has a lot of deep evolutionary roots that probably is driving a lot of the behaviors that are good for the environment. Climate change has been framed as an issue for future generations. Let's talk about whether that responsibility for children, if that pulls on some strong evolutionary impulses yeah. in ourselves. Decker Keltner? It's hard to talk about <clears throat> climate change to kids because there's a, an apocalyptic dimension to it. It's catastrophic. When I have the conversations about it with my daughters, literally one time it triggered an anxiety attack because, ah, you know, the world's coming to an end. And in particular, what we're learning in the health sciences is climate change is going to damage the nervous systems of people around the world, right? Mm -hmm. So if anybody's been to Beijing, the air quality there and what it's doing to the health distribution of those individuals, uh, one of the strongest predictors of a healthy immune system is having a, a healthy environment around you, a natural environment actually affects their nervous system. That health argument will be very compelling to parents. This is about the life expectancy of my child. The idea of severe weather, whether it's uh, Katrina, Sandy, record monsoons, uh, typhoons in the Philippines, droughts, floods. George Marshall, do people then take that and say, wow, climate change is here, I better do something? Or do they say, well, that wasn't so bad. The New York subway flooded with yeah. the Atlantic Ocean. It's gone now. Have we all forgotten? When you have an existing point of view, you bring in around it the evidence to support your existing view is clearly what happens around people's attitudes to extreme weather events. I had an opportunity to go and speak to extreme weather survivors in central Texas, the town of Bastrop, where a third of the houses burnt down. Huge wildfires under extreme heat conditions, the hottest temperatures ever experienced in Bastrop County, and also along the coast of New Jersey. What they wanted to tell me about was how validating the experience was in terms of their sense of community. And people do come together under conditions of extreme weather events. And then when they stay on in the area, they're voting in favor of the area. It's a positive vote for a positive outcome in the future. They are not in a position to want to take on board the possibility that this might be a regular occurrence and get worse. And to all of these people, I asked the same simple question, which was, could you tell me about the last conversation that you had with someone about the connection between climate change and what you experienced? And in neither of these places could I find a single person who could tell me 
about a conversation that they had had. There was a, a collective suppression of that discussion. If you're just joining us on Climate One today, we're talking about psychology and messaging language. I'm Greg Dalton, and my guests are George Marshall, author of Don't Even Think About It, Why Our Brains Are Wired to Ignore Climate Change, and Dacher Keltner, professor of psychology at UC Berkeley. Let's talk about a couple of fables, long-held narratives, The Boy Who Cried Wolf and Chicken Little. How do those look <laughs> in a climate context? You know, the interesting thing about The Boy Who Cried Wolf is he was right. <laughs> you know, we, we forget that when we hear the story. The wolf is there. Yeah, the wolf is there. The wolf came and ate all the sheep. The problem with the boy who called wolf was he became a distrusted communicator because he kept crying. The wolves are coming, the wolves are coming, the wolves are coming. And then everyone went, oh, we're not paying any attention to you anymore. And then the wolves came. So although Aesop frames it as a story about lying, it's actually a story about communicator trust. If we keep saying, it's the end, it's the end, with Chicken Little, there is a danger with that, that the trust of a communicator is lost. And of course, there are problems with telling people about how serious it is. And the more serious things become, the harder it is to communicate it. And I do not have a clear resolution for this. It is a constant debate within the, within the environmental community about, do we actually talk about this in terms of the seriousness of a threat, hoping that we can trigger that threat response? Yeah. Similarly, where people say, you know what, we don't need to talk about that at all. We can just simply talk about the opportunities. We can talk about the benefits of a low-carbon economy. And really, it's about pulling out both the positive benefits of the changes that we need to make and the threats in ways which speak clearly to the worldviews of the people we're speaking to. Not assuming that the Amazon burning down or Bangladesh going underwater or polar bears dying is something which is going to trigger with somebody who's just trying to put food on their table. Maybe for them it's going to be something which is much more direct and local in impact and concern their community. Dacher Keltner, how do you look at that balance between hope and fear as a psychologist and researcher? Politicization of of this issue makes it hard to talk about with a right. lot of people. People just will not make it a conversational topic, climate change. But what we know from studies of, for example, of social networks is that to the extent that people just make it an everyday part of their social conversation, talk about different practices that they're engaged in, what you see in studies of neighborhoods is those habits are picked up very yeah. quickly by other people. So talk about it. Right? Just make it part of family conversation today and in your community. George Marshall. For a long time, we've been thinking that the non-conversation of climate change is just an absence of conversation. There's a growing body of evidence to show that there is a very socially created, socially reinforced non-conversation which is happening. Entire societies can enter into non-discussed and non-negotiated collective contracts about what can and cannot be recognised and what it's appropriate to talk about, like previous struggles over social rights, disability, and sexual abuse, for example, where there is a socially constructed silence that has to be confronted. A third of people in recent polling couldn't recall a single conversation they'd ever had with anyone about climate yeah. change. But we all, in various ways, influence the social norm of people around us. Right. And that we have to be open with this. And if we're convinced about this, we have to say, I'm convinced, I'm convinced, and wear that openly in our, in our own social groups. One thing we haven't talked about is actions, individual action. Right. How right. significant is it to compost, buy an electric car, to live a green lifestyle, make green consumer choices? George Marshall, are those significant in terms of identity and culture, or are they trivial? I think they're hugely important for our personal consistency in terms of dealing with this issue. My colleagues in the environmental movement, they're very happy to talk about climate change. They're very uncomfortable talking about personal flying. But there's a, there's a socially negotiated silence often around aspects of their own lifestyle. Because, yeah. And I flew here as well, and I'm quite open about it, but I, you know, but I had to. So I think we do have to do it. It's not just a matter of walking the walk. It's also vital for our own credibility as communicators. And also, you know, the, the thing which gets people installing photovoltaics on their roof is the fact that they see the people around them doing it. It's as simple as that. And it's that social norm which generates the change. And what have you done in Wales in your own lifestyle other than flying here? You got solar panels in Wales? Do they have the sun, sunshine in Wales? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, the, the, the solar panels rust before you get any power out of them. No, actually, strangely, we have solar panels right across Wales because the government is actively encouraging people to do it. And if we talk about the solutions to climate change resting with the stronger bonds that we have between people, about doing things locally, about supporting the local economy, uh, about doing things within our community, we're creating a story which is much more appealing across the board. There's one part of the book where I think there's a, there's a mistake. You write that <laughs> okay. sex is a carbon-neutral activity. Now, think about all the food and alcohol and all, all of the, <laughs> the fossil fuels that go into the food and alcohol, the, you know... 
leather involved. I like, right, so, <laughs> leather, yeah. <laughs> look, let's go to our yes. uh, audience questions. Welcome to Climate <laughs> One. Hi, my name is Carter Brooks. I'm an artist and philosopher of climate art. It's my own personal belief we have a little bit of an overemphasis on people's individual actions. We, we tend to promote the solution to climate change as everybody's behavior changing, mm. when in fact there's a larger system at play. Civilization as an organism perhaps is consuming the resources of the planet. What is the potential to shift the focus more to the collective action and recognize this issue around the overemphasis on the... Decker Keltner. It is a systemic problem, but we've got to find narratives that appeal to particular cultural mindsets. And I think the individual action is very appealing to a kind of a more Western European individualistic mindset. I think in China, it's going to be much easier to implement broad social interventions responsive to climate issues that are about duty, right, or about advancing the collective. But that argument, although right, is going to face resistance, I think, in, in parts of the West. So we need multiple approaches to this. I really want to avoid saying we can only talk about it one way or another, or that there's only one set of solutions or another set of solutions. Because clearly we need a, a huge scale of systemic change on this. But I actually think that the excessive focus on personal behavior has been a slate of hand people who are in positions of yeah. power and authority to say, you know what, it's your fault. You sort it out, it's your fault. We're, we're just going to keep business as usual, but this is all somehow going to be mediated through the market mechanism of your personal choices. I think that's a, I think that's a serious piece of misinformation we should be quite yeah. angry about. Next question, welcome. Hi, my name is David Steyer. I came to the realization that climate change is a moral issue. It's not an intellectual or an emotional issue. And I'm wondering if there's been research about other social movements and how they've been successful in adopting change and what that can do for climate change. Dr. Keltner? What makes social movement successful against police issues, wage issues, uh, employment issues? It is the passions that drive social change. And that raises the challenge for the climate change movement, which is what passions are really going to move people. And there are many different moral themes that will resonate given your particular cultural background, your temperament and the like. For some people, it really is about harm and care. For other people, it's about cleanliness and purity. Um, but passion is, is a good bet. Also, George Marshall points out that Martin Luther King's speech is, I have a dream, not I have a nightmare. So the hope and fear. <laughs> yes. uh, let's, let's go to our next question. Dave Masson, Citizens Climate Lobby. Speaking of other possible frames, climate work over the last 40 years has generally been focused on fear leading to collective action at some point. An alternate paradigm is goal-oriented action used by militaries, modern businesses. Goals rather than emotions. People have been interested in what can change people's minds for a long time in the persuasion literature, and a certain amount of fear works, but once you cross yep. a midpoint, it's bad news, people freeze up. We also know goals are subserved by big parts of our nervous system, like the dopamine system, which gets people doing things. There are a lot of terrific social psychological studies showing just get people thinking about specific goals and they'll take action. It's this kind of frame switch that, that, that would be useful. Let's have our next question. Um, you know, if a show like Meet the Press discusses climate change, they have one representative of yeah, pro-climate change and one a climate change denial, and they are considering that balanced coverage because they both have five minutes. What are your thoughts on media coverage of climate change? This is the area where we should recognize that there are some very powerful vested interests and some very serious money which is put into this in order to create the sense of, uh, of a false debate. I think that the media does have a, a serious responsibility for this, seriously negligent in the way that they have portrayed the level of the, of the consensus on this, uh, seriously irresponsible in not showing the, um, the personal political affiliations for people they have on their programs. And I really think it's one of the things which we as citizens can do, is if we think that there is bias there, to actually go directly to them and say, this is not acceptable. Next question, welcome. How could the scientific community change the chicken little narrative to change the social narrative? We need great storytellers. And the great storytellers, like Charles Darwin in the field of evolution, uh, that was really a, a fact-based narrative that shifted Victorian mindsets to really a radically different set of beliefs. And the data are really clear that great stories are what convince people. We've been hearing from Dacher Keltner, professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, and George Marshall, author of Don't Even Think About It. You're listening to Climate One.
and consciousness. They seem like strange bedfellows at first blush, but learning how the mind works is crucial to learning how to change our minds about energy and the economy. My next guests may also seem like strange bedfellows, yet they've been partners for over 20 years at the Chopra Foundation, and their approaches to this subject provide an interesting balance. Deepak Chopra is a physician and author. His latest book is Super Brain, unleashing the explosive power of your mind to maximize health, happiness, and spiritual well-being. Ronaldo Brutico is an investor and entrepreneur. He's founding president of the World Business Academy and president of the Chopra Foundation. Here's our conversation about climate on our minds. Warning, listening to this may be good for your health. Deepak Chopra, how would you characterize the urgency or severity of the challenge before us right now with regard to changing the way we power the world economy? The Buddha said once, when your house is burning, you don't analyze the causes of who lit the match, you put out the fire. And our planet is burning right now, and this is an emergency. But this is the one thing that if we address properly, it is the solution to peace social justice, economic justice, a sustainable planet, and ultimately health and happiness. And if people recognize the challenge, what can they do to help bring about this change? Is it specific actions they take in their life, or is it more about their thinking? There are three things that should happen simultaneously. One is the way we do science. Right now, science looks at the planet and the universe, basically, in bits and pieces. So science has to be looking at the universe as an undivided wholeness. Our rivers are our circulation, and the sun and the air and the trees are our breath. So we have to start doing science in a way that, that we include our biology as an expression of the ecosystem. The second shift has to be emotional and spiritual. Fossil fuels is the reason why we have wars. It is the reason why there's extreme economic and social injustice. And it is the reason we are poisoning our own bodies. So we need to feel that emotionally. And the third is that it has to be practical and it has to generate wealth. You know, if we understand that energy is infinite, that the sun and the wind and microgrids and all the new technologies that are cropping up right now, including energy-saving devices, this needs to become immediately the next movement. If we truly understand that sustainability is the key to wealth consciousness, then we can create wealth from the infinite abundance of the universe that comes to us through energy. Some would say that clean energy is the biggest business opportunity ever in the history of the world. Ronaldo Brutico? Every time human society has switched fuel systems from wood to coal, coal to oil, and now recently to natural gas, every time it switches, you get this massive increase in national wealth. So our calculations are that the current GDP of the planet, which is $64 trillion on an annual basis, will reach somewhere between $350 to $650 trillion dollars over a period of 10 to 15 years, if you went straight ahead and did it, think of what that buys. Infrastructure, education, all these issues start to go away when you switch from scarcity to abundance. And in the last 10 years, the cost of wind energy has dropped by over 75% and is still dropping. The cost of solar energy has dropped by over 90% is still dropping. And that has unleashed enormous amounts of wealth. So we should be the people wanting to own the development of these technologies and to pursue them globally, and it will create a world you cannot imagine. Does that mean you're going to go into the boardrooms of oil and coal companies and do meditation and yoga and try to... How do you... That will help, but... uh, (laughs) That will help, but... But uh, socially conscious investing, socially responsible investing has been around for a long time, hasn't changed capitalism that much. It's kind of a niche thing in terms of incorporating social values into investing. Deepak Chopra, is this time different? I think the only way you change consciousness right now is first having a conversation like the one we are having because media can help you reach critical mass. But, you know, media includes internet, it includes social networks, and every possible outlet that we can have to 
engage in this conversation because it's an emergency. The second thing you do is bring this conversation into education, particularly in business school. I teach a class at Kellogg Business School called The Soul of Leadership, and it's based on the idea that if you can create a capitalistic society that is looking at sustainability and you create a business out of it, that you will be the business of the future. So in my class, we have 50 students. Uh, we divide the class into teams of five, and on the last day of the class, the teams make a presentation to venture capitalists, and they have to come up with a business plan that justifies this term, cause-driven marketing. And actually, it's very interesting because our venture capitalists who come as judges have actually now started funding some of these students who are coming up with absolutely brilliant ideas on how to recycle toilet water and make it uh, drinkable in apartment buildings, create energy, etc. And these are kids, basically, who are doing this. So I think education is a very important part, but media is even more important. And so I think we need to harness all these resources Otherwise, nobody will know that uh, social uh, investing is such a big uh, enterprise already. How many trillions of dollars? Yeah. In the U.S., it's a $6.5 trillion investment market every day, $16.8 trillion globally. It's not like a sideshow anymore. And by the way, it has the fastest compounded annual growth rate over the last 10 years of any sector of investing. Divest Invest is one branch of this. So, Ronaldo Brutico, tell us about Divest Invest. So, Bill McKibben of 350.org has led this campaign for two years with some success now, saying that owning oil company stocks is the same as owning stocks in South Africa during the days of apartheid, that there's a moral obligation to divest from those stocks and invest in the stocks of the future, which are life-sustaining, i.e. green technologies. But divesting is actually a good economic decision whether you believe in the moral argument, which I happen to. Oil company stocks are at their all-time high. Get out of them. Sell them. They're, they're not going up. They're only going to go down. But China, India is ravenous for fossil fuels to bring people out of poverty. And coal demand is actually going up globally. People want that lifestyle that we have, and they're, they're hungry for it, Ronaldo. Well, actually, the coal thing is misunderstood. China's growth in renewables has outstripped every country on the planet in terms of solar and wind, watch how fast China moves. The reason we have cheap solar in America is because of China. As Buckminster Fuller said, you can only get rid of an old model by creating a new model that makes the old model obsolete. So if this is so optimistic, why aren't more people and more capital rushing in this direction? Because it's not part of our collective conversation. Shifts happen in collective consciousness when that consciousness reaches tipping point or critical mass. That's why we're having this conversation. If you're just joining us, I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about energy and consciousness with author and physician Deepak Chopra and Ronaldo Brudico, president of the Chopra Foundation. There's also something, Deepak Chopra, you've written about life experiences trigger genes. So how does the thoughts we have and the experiences we have change our genes in our minds at a physical level? If you experience the following five things, good sleep every night, meditation as a tool for stress management, Movement, exercise, yoga, breathing, but any movement. A diet that doesn't contain fossil fuels. Anything that's processed, manufactured, comes in a can or has a label, has petroleum in it. And healthy emotions, such as love, compassion, joy, equanimity. These five things influence the activity of your genes. So you have 23,000 genes, approximately which is actually a few thousand less than the common potato. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's not the genes that make you, it's how those genes are activated, okay? So there's a chemical process that occurs, it's called methylation, just simply sitting, closing your eyes, and experiencing silence sets off a process of self-regulation. Consciousness influences biology, okay? But your biology is the biology of the ecosystem. 90% of the DNA in your body is not human DNA. It's microbial DNA. 90% of it is bacteria. They're in our skin, they're in our folds, in our hair follicles, in our GI tract, in our orifices. And you are literally 
a microbial colony with a few human <laughs> cells hanging on to it. <laughs> now, when you look at this microbial colony, you'll find that it goes back all to the first primitive organisms in our biological evolution. So you are the ecosystem of our planet since the beginning of life. And what we do to this ecosystem, we do to ourselves, which is related to changing weather patterns, which is related to how we use fossil fuels and our behaviors. We have a personal body, we have a universal body, and they're both equally ours. I believe you just said that if you're listening to the Commonwealth Club, it's improving your consciousness and your DNA. Oh, right. This, at this moment, the genes in your neurons are being activated in a way that's healthy for you just as a result of that insight. You, you can send somebody an emoticon on, on their uh, email, you give them a dopamine hit. <laughs> okay? Okay. Or you can say something threatening to them and their cortisol goes up and their immune system shuts down. You talked about the importance of sleep. You teach at Kellogg, you teach at Columbia, lots of books. Do you sleep? My active state is as restful as your sleep. <laughs> uh, okay. uh, got nothing for that, yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about identity and consumers. Are we consumers? We think of ourselves as consumers? Because that's certainly the way a lot of us seek pleasure. The stuff in your body was manufactured in the crucible of stars. So you are literally star stuff, with consciousness, of course. I think the word consumer is such an ugly word. And words are powerful, they become memes in our collective consciousness. Luminous stardust being with awareness. <laughs> That's who I am anyway. We talked about divesting from fossil fuels. Deepak Chopra, do you think that fossil fuel executives are evil? Are they the black hats? And can you forgive them? They are localized expressions of our collective consciousness. So we cannot judge them as evil because they do what we all are doing. What we call normal today is the psychosis of our collective consciousness. And we take it for granted. It's not normal. Is there any guilt involved in that? People feel guilty for what we're doing, we're part of? Yeah, but guilt is not the solution. You have to go beyond guilt. You actually have to go beyond uh, hope, even, because hope is a sign of despair. You have to find that place inside you, which is the creative um, center of yourself, which is also the creative center of the cosmos, because in the end, at the deepest level of our being, uh, we are that singularity. Are you hopeful that humanity will rise to the climate challenge? I'm not hopeful, I'm realistic. <laughs> and realistic means that uh, we have to be the change we want to see in the world, otherwise we're doomed. Let's go to audience questions. <laughs> uh, my question revolves around a socioeconomic basis of this discussion. Let's say a global wealth does quintuple. What about the distribution of that global wealth? Look at this country in the last 20 years, we have a diminished wealth in almost all but a small percentage of the population. We have a social problem as well as an energy problem. How will you address that? Ronaldo Brutico? I think it's probably the biggest thing wrong with the United States. And it's gotten worse, as you know, every decade since World War II. It's been the source of so many ills, and, and I think it's corrupted our politics. The fact that the top 1% benefit 80% of all the gains since the end of the recession, 80% went to the top 1%. That's wrong, and we have to politically stop that. If you don't go out and make it happen in a democracy, it's going to happen to you. So I urge you to consider that. Next question. Welcome. There's $100 trillion worth of oil remaining in the ground, and the men who make money off that will not let anything get in their way. How does consciousness interrupt this? Deepak Chopra? We are that consciousness. Our collective consciousness is what creates um, change in behavior. There was a time when everybody was smoking in public spaces, but collective consciousness chose to change that. You don't get rid of 
an ideology or a system by killing it because you can't kill an idea. The same way you don't get rid of a terrorist by killing the terrorist because the ideology of terrorism is like Medusa's head. You kill one and two more come. You have to shift in collective consciousness because those people who are in charge are us in a different uniform. Let's have our next audience question. Sacramento is the number one green city right now, and the main reason is they're using biodigesters for their food. Food waste is a huge problem in this country. They're taking food waste and they're turning it into fuel for vehicles. And I was wondering what your thoughts were as far as the trend in the country for biodigesters. One of the trends we thought was huge was biodigesters. It's very low technology. It just takes sunshine and a black thermos bottle, if you will, metaphorically. And uh, a few enzymes help accelerate the process. But in three weeks, you can take almost any kind of organic material and turn it into a fairly high grade of methane. And if you don't do that, by the way, that same methane degrades over time and becomes part of global warming. So you're actually recycling something that needs to get put away. And if it also solved the groundwater problem in the Midwest from all the pig farms and whatnot that are polluting the groundwater. Let's have our next question. I totally get the whole discussion about self-transformation leading to universal abundance. I think the opportunity is bridging that gap. I just want to get some perspective on how one can make that happen, how one can bridge that gap in a tactical, tangible manner. Some specific steps people can take to make this happen. Jigger Shaw wrote the book Solar Wealth, and he says if the sun can apply all this energy for... Uh, hundreds of millions of years to come, why aren't we harnessing it? And he decided to create financial instruments where you could own your own solar energy, you could save on your bills, and you could get wealthy. And so here he is, just turned 40. He's a young billionaire, and he's making a difference in the world right now. So it takes creativity, it takes action, but it also takes love. Love without action is meaningless, and action without love is irrelevant. We've been discussing collective consciousness with Deepak Chopra, a physician and author, and Ronaldo Brudico, a businessman and president of the Chopra Foundation. Thank you for joining us this hour. Free podcasts of this and other conversations on energy, economy, and the environment are available in the iTunes store by searching Climate One. Please join us next time for another discussion about powering America's future. Climate One is a sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineer is Jenny Dillon and editor is Claire Schoen. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio. Mm-hmm.